Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and share their story. They may have overcome something amazing or they might still be on some kind of journey. But they all have stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. I'm so thrilled to be joined by someone who I know will already be such an inspiration to so many of you listening. Matt Haig started his career writing fiction with several successful novels under his belt before he released the Sunday Times bestseller Reasons to Stay Alive back in 2015. In the book, he looks back on the hardest time of his life when he suffered a breakdown at just 24 years old, leading him to nearly take his own life. He explains how he endured depression and learned to enjoy life again. The book was a massive hit selling over a million copies and being translated into 50 languages, saving lives all around the world. He's continued releasing bestsellers, including his latest novel, The Midnight Library. I'm delighted to say Matt Haig joins me now. Hello. It's lovely to be here, Katie. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, we haven't properly met, but this is, yeah, I feel like I know you um, because we've we've talked online a little bit and it's so nice to actually, yeah, have a proper one-on-one, especially as we're still in... um, lockdown and it's just so nice to chat isn't it yeah it's funny I sort of half dread connection and then sort of half get really excited about it because it never never happens anymore but I've got so much um I want to talk to you about and you know I've prepped all these questions but I think I have to start by talking about Nora because I like many other people I devoured Midnight Library um and I don't know if it's because emotions are really heightened at the moment but the book made me cry. Um, it it comforted me. I found myself in the story, um, and I, I'm not going to try to attempt to describe what it's about because I I think you can do that better than me. But I suppose what stood out to me was this, you know, it's so poignant this appreciation for life, um, and where I saw myself in it was this, you know, I feel like I've been given a second chance at life. Um, so it, it felt so close to home mm. for me. For people that haven't read it, can you, you know, can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yeah, basically, the Midnight Library of the title is basically this library um, which is infinite and it's between life and death. So this woman who's, um, everything's gone wrong for her in her life. Um, she's called Nora and she's lost her job, recently left a relationship. She she feels like she's at various dead ends. She's feeling a lot of guilt and regret and that she hasn't lived up to her parents' aspirations for her. All, all the kind of usual things that can sort of bog you down. And she's got a lot of them going on. She's been diagnosed with situational depression and she just feels in dreadful situation and she feels like there's no way out. Her, her pet dies. She's lost her job on this particular day. Um, and she, uh, yeah, she takes an attempt on her own life and she finds herself in a kind of limbo between life and death where she arrives at this library, um, which is not like a normal earth library because it's infinite and the shelves go on forever and um all the books on the shelves are the same color they're all green um but 
each one, she's told by this librarian, is a different version of her life if she'd lived it a different way. So she gets to try um, how her life would have been if she'd have made different choices at different times simply by taking a book off the shelf and opening the book. So she has to choose before the library crumbles to the end. She has to try and find out if there's a life that she would feel like she is worth living and where, you know, she she made better choices and better decisions. So it's her trying to work out how to live, basically. When did you start writing it? What year? I, I wrote it all pre-COVID, but then the very last edit of it, when I go in and sort of change a few things, that was in roughly this time last year. So it was in that dreaded March 2020. We had a lot of sort of um, chaotic things going on, obviously. And I had to make a decision as to whether whether I should mention coronavirus or COVID yeah. in the book. And I decided against that because I, I wrote it as I say, in 2019. And it was such a fast-moving situation, so I didn't know. But I feel some of that sort of atmosphere um, found its way into the book. Mm, yeah, I thought so. I, met, I I was kind of reading and furiously underlining the book and, you know, Nora was kind of talking about feeling stuck in life and just floating around. And, and I thought, oh, I wonder how much influence what we were all going through or what you were personally going through had in your writing, but I, I guess not a lot then, because if you were at edits at that point, you, you don't make big changes. Um, well, no, uh, but it's more about what you choose to take out. And there were things definitely that um, felt wrong, but that was less to do with the times in 2020 and more the fact that I'm a, a man writing, a, you know, the main character's a woman and I'm a man, obviously. And um, that hadn't always been the case. When I first started writing the book, it w I was writing about a, a male character. Oh, okay. And it wasn't working. And I think the reason it wasn't working was because it was too like me. It was too, it, you know, like when you're sort of like too aware of yourself or, uh, you know, you, you look in the mirror too long or whatever, you, you, you no longer see yourself. You no mm. longer, um, you can never objectively know yourself, can you? And so this character was invisible to me because it was me, basically. So I thought by changing the gender, um, it would more obviously not be me. And then because it was this person called Nora, it was like a shield I could sort of hide behind. And then weirdly, it became more autobiographical because obviously I've never been a woman. And so I had to add those, I had to sort of like um, be very conscious that that experience would be different and people's expectations would be different for you. But in terms of the mental health stuff that's in the book, I put a lot of my own um, experience um, in that, especially in the first part of the book where she's suicidal and depressed and, and, and there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't even put in sort of reasons to stay alive in terms of how I was feeling and stuff. So it was quite freeing in a way, the fact that she was a woman and that I'm a man. So it was clearly a different person. I could, in a way, put more of myself um, in her mind. Yeah, it's quite liberating because like you said, it's also safe because it's not you. Even, yes, even if exactly. you're getting that kind of cathartic sort of process of, yes. of writing it down. Um, I wanted to talk about um, reasons to stay alive. You know, it, it, you were 24 um, and I was looking back to when I was, when I was 24, that's when I was attacked. And, you know, it's, it's right. such a different time in your life, your early 20s. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing you were 24 in like the 90, 1990s. Is that right? Yeah, I was uh, 1999. So end of the 90s, and um, which was a weird time anyway. 
well, the last three summers we'd spent in Ibiza. And as soon as you say Ibiza, everyone thinks, oh, you're partying all night, you're on drugs, you're doing this, that, and the other. Maybe in 1997, that was true. By 1999, we had quite kind of respectable jobs in Spain. And I was definitely drinking too much. I was never a really big drugs person, certainly not by Ibiza standards, but I was drinking too much. And um, there was free alcohol everywhere I went. Um, but beyond that, I didn't feel like I was in that much of a um, crazy situation. We were living in this very quiet villa on the east side of the island. It was a very beautiful where we were and everything. And everything should have been right. And um, then one day at 11 in the morning, two weeks before we were going to go home, which I think was part of it because I had no idea what the future was holding for me. Mm. Um, I'd had a, a terrible winter, that winter in London, where I'd had about five different jobs that I'd either got fired from or left. I had... I was really battling uh, self-confidence anyway. I was struggling with that transition like lots of people do into becoming a grown-up when I didn't feel like one. Uh-huh. I'd stayed stayed on at university for as long as possible just because I couldn't face the real world and sort of wanted to be a sort of like student forever. Mm. And I was just um, having all that stuff. But I, until I had my actual breakdown, until I had like this panic attack which didn't, ends which um just happened in the morning as i say i wasn't particularly unhealthy hadn't even smoked a cigarette that day i'd i'd been for a run um that morning and then at 11 in the morning i started just feeling weird and i I felt felt you know quite ridiculously because i was 24 years old i felt i was having a heart attack then i thought i was going mad and um um, I was told it was a panic attack, but my understanding of panic attacks were these things that you have for like 10 minutes and then they go away. And this was like this thing that didn't go away. I yeah. was just like in this very exhausting, intense uh, state. You know, people think of panic attacks as these kind of light things. But when you have a full-blown mammoth panic attack and you're you, you getting these experiences, I think the symptom is called... Um, derealization which right. i didn't know at the time but where the world doesn't feel real and you don't feel real because the panic's so much um i had that for like ages and then i was prescribed diazepam which wasn't um which wasn't the right drug for me so it made me more spacey made the panic attacks more weird mm. and i wanted to feel more in control of myself and i felt less in control more of myself. disconnected almost really then yes yeah. And it was a real challenge. And, and I was so lucky that I had a partner with me who could actually take me back to England because I couldn't have arranged anything for myself. Yeah. Um, at that point, I was totally agoraphobic. Getting to the airport was a nightmare and flying on the plane was an even bigger nightmare. And then I went back to live with my parents for three months and um, in Nottinghamshire. And it was just a horrible, horrible, horrible time. And there was no off switch at all. And the reason I was suicidal was because... I, not because I, it sounds stupid, not because I wanted to die, not because I had a death wish, but Mm -hmm. because I just couldn't see a way out. And Mm -hmm. I think this is the danger, especially when you're young and you have, uh, you know, you, you fall into a situation and... You know, as you get older, the one good thing about getting older is you understand the fluctuations of time and how you have bad periods in your life and you recover or or you manage with the situation. But when you're young and, and the first bout of depression hits you and it's so strong and intense, you feel like you're on another planet, you think... You know, you'd think that's it, don't you? You think, wow, that is just, there's no way. This is me, yeah. 
this is this is me. This is this low point is going to be every low point. I will never like because, because I was this sort of young man who wanted to be in control of my own health. I couldn't even cope with the diagnosis of depression. I thought like this is a well, that's label. a big label in the nineties for because yeah. we're talking about male mental health in the nineties. Did those yes. conversations even exist back then? I I don't know. No, not really, not really. I mean, I I think you'd had people like Stephen Fry start talking about it a little bit but no it wasn't I mean uh, and that was part of the problem because all the famous people I had in my head who'd had mental illness it was just suicides Mm. that's who you had in your head you had Kurt Cobain in your head Mm -hmm. you know you had whoever Ernest Hemingway whatever and it was just famous dead people and and so it sort of gave you a narrative in your head that well that's where you end up You, you you there's there's two binary states you're either well or you're mad, and if you're mad, you end up dead. Mm-hmm. And that—that that was that's one of the great things I think about the mental health conversation is that we actually know so many people now who talk openly about their struggles, and it helps other people because it's it, it becomes something that you live with rather than that kills you. And I think like in 1999, I thought, right, I've I've just turned this corner. And it's going to kill me. Or if it doesn't kill me, I'll be in a straitjacket by the end of the week and in a padded cell somewhere. And it was just, it was that either or. You were either well and happy or you mm. were this. And obviously that's just a, a false, false news. You know, you are on this scale always. But yes, when you're ill, you slip wildly to one side of the scale, but you're still on a scale. One of the reasons I like you is if you are somebody with a big following or you're you're prolific, you're famous, there's this um, tendency where particularly celebrities always write about mental health in the past tense. Mm. And now I'm better and here's my product I'm selling. And they can't go backwards because otherwise they're, they're not the expert they're claiming to be. And yes, I always feel yes. like you sometimes just wake up and write I'm really depressed, <laughs> not got the answer, not coping, not, not. Blurt met. it out. Yeah. yeah. And I think, oh God, that's really good. Because when I first started writing and people started calling me an inspiration, I was just like, shit, nightmare pedestal. Cause I've got loads it, of problems. It's, it's heavy, heavy duty that, isn't it? Yeah. When, they, when they call, or when they call you brave on a day when you're really not feeling brave. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not this permanent, you know, I'm not in the Avengers. Um, you know, and it's very well-meaning a lot of that stuff. So I'm not dissing it. It's obviously a very flattering when people say very nice things and it is it's meant in a lovely way but it's still but the wrong yeah, labels it, 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 though isn't it it's, it's still, not helpful yes it is and it's still pressure yeah um, my i suppose if i've got any advice for anyone in any field whatever they're doing whether it's about how you handle mental illness whether it's about how you write books or wh- whatever you you know if you're creative in any way it's try not to box yourself in you know people in life will give you labels They'll put things upon you. They'll, they'll say you're a depressive. They'll say you're a children's writer. And what I try and do, as soon as I feel like I've got a fixed identity, I try and break out of that yeah. identity. I, I get very claustrophobic if I feel like boxed in, you know, if I feel like, you know, and I talk about um, depression and mental health, but I do it on my own terms. And I don't, I don't only write about that. You mm. know, I've written children's books about Father Christmas and 
pixies and stuff. So I, I, I write about what I want to write about. But I, when I'm talking about mental illness, it's not because I think, oh, I'm known as Mr. Mental Illness. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this because it will sell the two books I wrote on mental illness. I'm talking about it because I still have mental health issues and I'm not better in, in the sense of being 100% better. I'm better in that I'm like comparatively better than I was. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not in the promised land. I'm not in Nirvana and I'm not like on the mountaintop. You know, my books, my nonfiction books are often called self-help and I've got, I'm not snobby at all about self-help books at all, but I don't think that my books really are because I see self-help as like, um, when you've kind of got all the answers and I'm, I'm really asking a load of questions and that, you know, I, I've sometimes got the answers to my younger self and mm. hoping that will help other people, but I'm not a doctor and I'm not like, you know, I haven't got a PhD in psychology or anything. I'm just someone who went through a situation, writes about it to make other people, um, feel less alone. And I think, I think you occupy a similar space in that sense. You know, people mm. like to feel less alone in whatever journey, whatever struggles they've been through. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, a lot of the listeners to this podcast themselves um, would have had their own traumas and stories. And, you know, lots of people, particularly with more time in their hands at the moment, are exploring self-publishing and blogging and, and writing. Yeah. And I suppose one thing me and you share in common is that we've written about quite private personal experiences. And, you know, there's a responsibility with going public with that, like, like we discussed. And I was thinking about uh, reasons to stay alive. It, it was 16 years later from that yeah. time in your life that you wrote that, and I, I wondered, was there a reason you waited that long? Is 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 there some kind of advice there to give to people that are thinking about writing something yeah. that's personal? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny actually because a lot of people say, "I really love your first book," and I always know they mean reasons to stay alive. But yeah. reasons to stay alive was my tenth book, and I it I was hiding behind fiction for a long time before that, not writing about mental health at all, not even in the fictional way. Um, and the truth is, I didn't know how to speak about depression or anxiety or panic disorder. Uh, for a long time and I lost lots of friends because I had this invisible thing going on inside me which was dominating my life but I couldn't articulate it to anyone and so I'd make up excuses I'd not pick up the phone someone you know when I was back living with my mum and dad I'd have a friend ask me to go out to Nottingham on a Saturday night and literally it would have been physically impossible I'd have ended up in a psych ward to even try and go out so I had to I I because I couldn't articulate it, I inevitably lost friends, some of whom I I, I, I speak to now on uh, on social media and stuff. But I lost a lot of friends, childhood friends and stuff at that time because I couldn't speak or write about it. The only people in that period before Reasons to Stay Alive I'd told were my parents because they had to know because I was living with them and Andrea who knew because she was there at the time. And beyond that, apart from doctors, there was nobody really that I told for a decade. Wow. So it's so, it's so funny that like now I'm seen as this person who bangs on and does everyone has head in talking about mental health, this mental health, that, because I feel like it's like just, you know, like water behind a dam and then the dam bursts mm -hmm. and then it just there because I was quiet for so long. I don't think I could talk until I was 80 and I'd still have more to talk about because I, it was so trapped inside me for so long. And with reasons to stay alive, to be honest, I wouldn't have written that. I don't think I'd have written that unless I'd been asked to write it. And mm. it, I, it's the only book ever I've been asked to write. And what happened was the very first time I went public with mental health was 
in a blog form. I'd been asked by a charity called Book Trust to be their writer in residence. And for the first like 20, 30 blogs I'd done with them, I was just doing writing tips and general writer stuff with you know, which hadn't got much attention or anything. Then I did, then I, because I'd run out of everything to say, I thought in this quite safe space, which wasn't really very seen, um, I'd talk a bit about mental health. So I wrote a blog and the blog was called Reasons to Stay Alive. And it was just a one-off blog. And it was just a list that's in the book halfway through of 10 reasons to stay alive. And it kind of went viral or at least viral by my standards back then and um a woman who worked in publishing said oh i've got a perfect publisher who you you know you should write a mental health book and you should write about your experience of depression i was like but what i'm not i'm not like a celebrity i'm not like um i'm not i don't feel like my experience was that unique and all of this blah 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 blah." and she said yeah but for those reasons you know it's going to be more relatable because because, you know, other people are going for it. And um, so she talked me into it. Then I had to work out how to do it. Like I thought, what type of book? And and here's a bit of advice. You know, if you're ever writing, trying to write a book or something, you know, don't think about the books that are out there. Do not try and get bogged down with the market because there wasn't really a, 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 the whole point of Reasons to Stay Alive was I was trying to write a book that would have helped me. And if that book had already existed, then I wouldn't have um, needed to write it. You know why it didn't exist, though? Because people would be mortified to think, well, open up. and Can't I just say it's a case study? Can't I make a fictional person? I can't open up like that. They, that I'm a professional. Yeah. You know, that would be mortifying yes. to be suggested. That's a weakness. Yeah. I can't say that, you know. Yeah, and, and there still is, you know, it, it's not like there's suddenly n- no stigma in the world about mental health. People, One thing that frustrates me slightly is that people say, oh, there's no stigma now about anxiety and depression. It's like only the margin for stigma still about eating disorders borderline personality disorder schizophrenia but in terms of mainstream mental health in terms of depression there's no stigma and i I even question that because obviously there's degrees of stigma and something like borderline personality disorder still has a lot of stigma schizophrenia still does but i think even in some quarters depression does Mm. you know it might not might not in media circles or celebrity circles but you know, if you look at the suicide statistics for men, for instance, um, when you really break it down, over half of male suicides, that man hasn't ever been um, to the doctor or told people about mental health issues, yeah. about having mental illness. So obviously, there's still a lot of silence around there. So yes, we might turn on daytime telly and see people, see famous people or journalists talking about their mental health and imagine that this is a conversation everyone's having. But, you know, it's not not across the board, not not in every type of community. Because mm. that's why um, it's shocking, is it? isn't it? Because it's the people that haven't expressed any issues and then they're just suddenly yeah. gone, you know. Yeah, totally. That's it. And it, it's hard for everybody. I remember mean, then it leaves a lot of guilt for the people left behind. And, you know, it, it, it's very hard. Um, but one thing that does help people open up is other people opening up. I mean, mm. I, I remember the most emotional event I ever did um, for that book, for Reasons to Stay Alive, was uh, one of the first ones. And it was in Glasgow. And this guy is really big, tough, working class Glaswegian guy, taxi driver, 60 years old you know, hard as nails, tattoos everywhere. And, um, you know, he hardly spoke. And I could see him, he was like shaking in the book signing. And then he revealed to me that that week he'd he'd been to the doctor for the first time in his life about his four decades long um, battle with 
depression last 40 years but and the bigger thing he said was the night before he'd gone to the pub with his mate his mate who he's gone to the pub with since they left school mm. and for the first time told him about his, having depression and as soon as he'd said that to his mate his mate had said oh me too you know I've had these issues and they have they talked about football they talked about their wives they talked about their jobs they'd never talked about this and <laughs> then suddenly but neither of them were judging each other. They were both sharing yeah. the story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Hello, you hungry people. I bring news. Yes, season five of Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner, is upon us. The world may have been in meltdown, but I've been using my time wisely, sharing fabulous meals with fascinating people and asking them prying questions. As a long-serving restaurant critic, my theory has always been that the best interviews happen over food, and the proof is this podcast. In season five, you'll find me dining my guests in top restaurants or with lockdown-compliant takeaways over Zoom. People like Darren Brown. Well, I do like a Gruner Feltler. Does you do that by the glass? Yeah. Yes, we do. What would I like? What would you... <laughs> Don't start. Oh, do, I, <laughs> do I have to guess? <laughs> Paloma Faith. I've also been told off for telling Samuel L. Jackson what to do. Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Just bring it all in. He's, he's shucking the oysters. Somebody's shucking oysters. <laughs> The oysters are being shucked at the boot of the car, apparently. Noel Clark. So we have lobster meter. Oh my god. Oh my. <laughs> Philippa Perry. I always like a man in makeup because they're, they're improved by it, but I hate false boobs. Hate them. Tom Allen. I do know a bit about patissiere because I knew what a ganache was before any of my friends at school did, but then they were actually quite happily getting fingered so <laughs> and more so subscribe now in all the usual places episodes drop weekly from tuesday the 26th of january 2021 It's a bit of a cliche question, and the answer, I guess, is the book. But I'm just thinking of like a little soundbite that's kind of takeaway for the audience. And it's that kind of question of so what would you say to your younger 24-year-old mm. self? Yes, I mean, I'm asked it a lot. And um, the thing is, you know, in my case, I probably, you know, in that moment, I was staying alive for other people. Now, obviously not everyone has other people, but I still think the advice is you stay alive for other versions of yourself. 
because I think you become other people in your life. So I would say um, the reason to hold on is that you're not always going to be stuck in that moment. There are going to be other moments. Mm. There are going to be millions of other moments and you're going to be so grateful that you stuck around. So yes, this bit is hard. This you is hard to live with, but there are going to be other yous. You you weren't the same person you were as a child. You're not going to be the same person in 10 years' time. We, We change. We take bits of ourselves, but we also evolve all the time. So stay alive for the person you'll be. And... Mm. That's not a very catchy soundbite, but it's yeah. kind of... good luck to the editor of this. <laughs> but, uh, I know I, I can normally write them, but I'm, I'm, I'm right. I'm real. As you we'll follow up with that. Quite waffly. I'm quite waffly person. But um, yeah, no, I just think it's that. It's about uncertainty, isn't it? Yeah. We, I think we're conditioned in like Western society to see uncertainty as such a negative, mm-hmm. and um, we've had so much uncertainty recently. But uncertainty is also hope. Mm-hmm. Uncertainty is like. You may have like a bad thing in the calendar, like an operation or a horrendous exam or an interview or something. But there's the uncertainty around that thing means that it might not be as bad as you think. Or even if it is, there might be some positive thing that comes out of it that you can't mm-hmm. see in this moment in time. I genuinely mean it when I say that I am happier this side of depression than I ever was as a young person before I became ill. I'm happier having been ill. I don't want to relive it. I don't ever want to go through that. But now I'm actually, I've known more happiness because I've known more gratitude, which I wouldn't have been able to have without it. Like before I became ill, I was this typical young man wanting to get drunk, you know, tequila slammers all night, stay dancing it until five in the morning, watch the most intense Tarantino movies, have the loudest music on. Everything had to be sort of like off the charts, you know, in terms of intensity. And I'd be bored very easily by things and stuff. Um, But after being ill, you're so, you're almost grateful to be bored. You're grateful to sort of be neutral. You don't always have to crave to be like, on cloud nine mm. or you know having having the time of your life well or, this is the world but, now you know, people will just be grateful to you know see yes, mum exactly <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. exactly and I, I feel like you know it's, it's a horrible way to have to learn that lesson isn't it but mm. yeah when things get back to normal we will be grateful for so many things that we did take for granted and you know just simple things like going into a cafe or yes hu- hugging hugging my mum and you know I've only seen my mum once in the last year properly yeah and um yeah all of that stuff which which was sort of mundane before is going to sort of now feel magic and that I relate that to the recovery from um depression and mental illness because you you suddenly like you know just staring at a tree or the grass mm, or a nature. cushion, you know, yeah. anything, any experience that's not got that weight on it, which you feel in depression has a kind of magic to it. So in a weird way, you, you, in my case, I went through three years of absolute hell, but on the other side of it, you're, you're, you're somewhere new. It's like, like, it's like, I suppose what a caterpillar goes through in a cocoon, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're literally, they're dissolved in their own acid. They totally dying kind of and they 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 probably you know it feels like that and then they come out and they're a butterfly and so you have this butterfly existence afterwards that you don't um you 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 don't imagine or foresee Mm. beforehand i've written that down i'm definitely going to plagiarize that and and credit myself (laughs) i've written i I (laughs) know more happiness because i've known more gratitude that's i think a lot of us could um could say that after this year um 
One of the things I enjoy about reading the comments on your Instagram and used to be your Twitter, although like you said, Twitter has become quite an aggressive place mm. this year, um, is you get these lovely nuggets um, from people that just hop on and go, your book saved my son's life. Oh, your book gave me a reason to try again. And they're just these really genuine testimonials and they're always really short and they're really powerful. Mm. Um, and I always think, wow, his his writing ha has genuinely saved lives. Um, and I wondered if there are books that have helped you. you know, I wondered if there's this yeah. list of, of books yes. we could all go out and buy that, that helped you because you've helped so many people. It's interesting because when I was actually having my breakdown, I was back in um, my childhood bedroom in Newark-on-Trent. And um, I had agoraphobia, so I couldn't go to a bookshop, even if there was one, but there wasn't a bookshop in Newark-on-Trent. There wasn't anything. There was a library, I suppose. But um, I was just reading like old ch children's books that were just on my shelf. So, you know, you can find help and comfort anywhere. I think, actually, Winnie the Pooh is a self-help book. Yeah. It's kind of... I, I, I think there's so much comfort in Winnie the Pooh. And if you think about it, I've thought about this too long because I, I, I used to just reread Winnie the Pooh all the time. Each character in Winnie the Pooh is a little, uh, is a, has a different mental health condition. Mm -hmm. So you've got Eeyore, who's depressed. You've got Piglet, who's anxious. You've got Tigger, who's hyperactive. And they've all got different, you know, but not obviously, I'm being a little bit um, silly, but they've kind of got their own issues and they all accept each other. And it's a book about acceptance and um, accepting uh, your flawed mm. self. So yeah, Winnie the Pooh is probably my ultimate all-time uh, comfort read. Actually, it's interesting you talk about that because I was wondering, because you've written um, lots of brilliant children's books and you know you've got two children yourself I, I wondered how you talk to your own kids about mental health and how much they know about your career your personal life because it's it's a question people ask me about my children and what yeah. do they know about me and yeah. what I do and stuff and I, yes. you know I, I suppose most people always think there's a sit down moment in our family yeah. it's just organic we are who we are they come to me with questions I answer them I don't know what's it like for you yeah, quite similar. I mean, obviously, they're children. It's like if you're going through anything. It's this like if you know if you're explaining about a relative with cancer, or if you're explaining about someone who died. It's like I think I think. Firstly, I think children can take more than we give them credit for. I, I think oft, often it's protecting the adult. It's often the adult doesn't want to talk about it, and so they're thinking the child. You know, they're sort of putting it on the child. Um, I wished when I was ill that I'd known more from my parents. They had their own reason for being quiet. But I, my mum was very um, depressed when I was little. She had postnatal depression for quite a long time, which I didn't know about. And she, she thought she was protecting me by not telling me. And I understand that because, you know, postnatal depression has got its own particular character. But it honestly helped me when I heard my mum um talk about what she'd been through with postnatal depression and she was very ill for about you know a good few years and she actually kept a diary she had this like you know because obviously it's 1970s so no social media but she kept this five-year diary and um so you could see you know the same day in 1975 1976 1977 and it was a real comfort when she actually finally gave it me to read because i could actually see her progress year by year on the same page um and i try and remember that when i'm dealing with my own kids i feel like actually my story isn't one of like 
illness. It's not a story of you're going to get ill. Mm. It's not a self-fulfillment prophecy. It's actually a story of, well, if crappy things happen to you in life, you know, my example is you're stronger than you think you are and you survive um, things that you imagine you won't be able to survive. And so hopefully you know, I try, you know, I try and just give them the positive side of the story about survival, about, you know, and, and yeah, you know, my daughter worries a lot about things. So she'll hear about coronavirus on the news or if it's on the telly or something, or she'll pick up on something and then she'll worry about it. So with me, she's worried, you know, she, when she heard the word suicide, she wanted to get to the bottom of it. But I said, you know, but that didn't happen. Mm. I'm alive. And it, you know, my story is that if you do have these really low moments in your life, you're going to be stronger than you realize and keep going. So obviously, you know, you can never know the future. You never know if you're doing the absolute right thing by your kids. And probably like every parent in the whole of human history, making some mistakes Mm. as we go along. But um, my approach is to be open but to still recognize that they're children and so uh, you you know if you're talking about someone dying or whatever you talk about it in a certain way to a child Mm. and as with mental health so it's not about ignoring it it's about just talking to it about it Mm. on their terms now i did i kind of avoided asking you too much about lockdown but i did wonder i read online i don't know if this is right that you homeschool prior to all of this that's your normal setup yeah we're crazy crazy bright and weirdos (laughs) yeah that's us (laughs) <laughs> so what is, I mean, obviously there's been changes for you outside of that, but has had it sort of been fairly normal for you then when the school shut? Well, no, th- th- no, not really. Because the thing is, um, because we live in Brighton, which is, you know, hippie central and, and you know, every alternative lifestyle you can think of is quite mainstream in Brighton. Mm. So it, there's a lot of homeschoolers. Every day they were having quite a social homeschool. They were going to groups oh, right, every yeah. day. So it was almost like school, but a kind of pick and choose mm. buffet, buffet, school buffet, where you could sort of like, oh, I'll have this one, I'll have this one. And um, so at least four days a week, they were out of the house. They were mixing with people. So when when everything switched to Zoom and stuff, it was almost, I won't say it's exactly the same, but it was almost the same sort of transition as um, yeah. uh, school kids. I think where we found it easier is obviously we didn't have the pressure or the stigma about homeschooling because we understood that you're not trying to replicate school. I think the absolute best teachers on earth are the ones that can, you know, not, not necessarily get them all grade A's at A-level, but just keep that sort of curiosity alive. Because that's what I lost as a teenager. It's just like, I I even went off books as a teenager because I just so associated it with worthiness and education Mm. and and a task and a chore. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. The worst thing a teacher can do is stop a child asking questions. Mm I think if you've got curiosity, you, that's 90% of the battle, isn't it? Because then they won't stop learning at 16 or at 18. They'll keep on learning because they'll be mm. interested in stuff and they'll, they'll check this out on Wikipedia or whatever. And I think that's the most, I think that's the, the one thing, even more than happiness, to stay curious, mm-hmm. curious about your own future, curious about life itself. That's what sort of keeps us in the world, keeps us motivated, keeps us um, going forward. So does that mean the ambition wasn't always to be a writer did you have different ambitions then I had no confidence at all in myself I I was sort of like the oddball at school because I went to quite a rough tough um working working class school I had lots of good friends there but I was a bit of fish out of water because I was 
I, I de- I'm definitely not posh in the book world, but I was posh in that school because my mum was a teacher, my dad was an architect, so I was middle class in a very working class school. So I would always, rather than be the posh boy, I would try and be downwardly mobile. Mm. So I'd try to, to fit in, I'd go one further. So I'd drink more beer at the party. I would I would shoplift from Boots. I'd, I got arrested for shoplifting in, in Boots. and I got um, banned for life from Woolworths for shoplifting. So I was I was thrilled oh, when you? they went into liquidation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, boots. Yes, boot, boots. Boots. They have uh, store detectives everywhere, yeah. I was, and I was getting cocky. I, and it was a crunchy bar and um, some wet look hair. Gel. Oh, you know this is the and Daily Mail thought- headline. This is it from the whole thing we've spoke about. <laughs> this is it that they take away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't care. It's it's part of my history. Um, but yeah, so I, I always felt like I had no ambition. I, I, I didn't see a future. And I think that was part of the problem mm. with my breakdown. Like I was suddenly an adult. I had to have a future. I'd, you know, I'd been so nervous that winter that the actual jobs that I wanted to get, like I, I, I for one little while, I wanted to work in advertising, got this amazing job in London and so Ho Square, this amazing interview, sorry. And I just stood outside in my suit and I just couldn't push the door open I couldn't go into the interview I was a nervous wreck so I was effectively having small panic attacks then and I um yeah I just had no self-esteem if someone had told me at 13 you will one day be a published writer I'd be like wow that's amazing yeah I really want to be a writer Mm. but because I didn't believe in myself I didn't you know and I I think I even suggested to a careers advisor once that I wanted to be a writer but you suggest that in back in the 80s or 90s to a careers advisor in Newark on Trent and they're not going to give you um the support yeah. you need in that they'll say well maybe you could think about possibly an internship in some publishing but they wouldn't give you um what you what what you need so occasionally you have to go the long hard way in life and in a weird way what gave me confidence um in myself was recovery because um i literally believed it was impossible for me to get over depression and then you do something that's impossible and then you think oh I can do other things that Mm. are technically impossible and um so in a way I that helped me um getting published not because I was writing about depression but because I had this I I didn't care about rejections I had like 50 rejection letters but I'd just keep on going that's um, part of publishing though isn't it that rejection that's almost the the pathway to it yeah it's so funny what you said about the careers meeting because I had to do a quiz in like year 10 and my results were to be either be a hairdresser or a nurse. That was what my multiple choice quiz showed. Oh, so really? I, did, I oh, trained wow. as a hairdresser. Yeah, well, I saw a, a thing actually, um, like uh, my, my nephew's actually thinking of setting up his own mobile hairdressing thing. And I read a survey that hairdressers are the happiest jobs. Yeah. Uh, the happiest profession and r- among the 10 most miserable i think writers are like seventh most miserable oh, <laughs> so it was, it was fairly bleak yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> thanks for that inspiring so, ending to the podcast it, well i know i'm thinking of growing my hair and becoming a hairdresser <sighs> but um yeah no actually since since i've sh- shaved my head i've been uh, uh, i've been happier I sleep oh better. really uh, so i am I, i'm my own hairdresser every day so i ask myself <laughs> if i'm going anywhere nice for the holidays yeah. but obviously no, no one is so one <laughs> I, I'm going to end because basically I could just stay here forever talking to you, but that's probably not a very, very ideal. No, I mean, too. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling, I wasn't feeling, I wasn't, I was thinking, oh, I'm not in a chatty mood. But then as soon as I got talking, 
We haven't yeah, shut it's up. It's been really good. Um, no. But I wanted to end on a really nice thing that I thought was really cool. Um, tell us about your books being adapted for TV and film. I think that's really amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, right, when you're a writer, you become. I've had almost every single one of my um, novels for grown-ups um, options, which means someone's buys the film mm. rights. And I used to think that meant, okay, you retire in Malibu. That's great. Yeah. And it often means it's not going to be made. There is one that is definitely going to be made because it's been made. And it's my children's book, A Boy Called Christmas. And it's going to be out, fingers crossed in cinemas and also Sky this um, Christmas. And then Netflix internationally this year. And that stars Maggie Smith and um sally hawkins and jim broadbent and Kristen wig and people oh wow and that and i've seen it and my kids have seen it and it is really good and i can't take the credit for being good because i i didn't write the script of it they've done lots of new things with it um all i did was i got to choose which of the producers who wanted it went and went with the right people and they've done a really good um film of it so i am very excited about people seeing it because it actually is like it, it i genuinely think even if I had nothing to do with it, I would really enjoy yeah. it. Because of and kids don't, kids don't lie, so they like it. So I'm really pleased. And there may be other things happening, like of the Midnight Library and How to Stop Time. But it, yeah, I'm super excited about it. And it also, it's got nothing directly to do with mental health. So it's a good excuse for me not to talk about it's quite um, nice. depression, depression yeah. and, you know, something else, yeah. something different. Do you know what? It's been so wonderful talking to you. You've you've lived up to the title of the podcast. You've been extraordinary. Um, so, oh, and I, I said uh, before we came on, yeah, you don't you don't really do lots of podcasts. So I, I feel really honoured that you decided to do mine. No, I, well, I think you're great, Katie. And I think I'm not going to put you on that pedestal because yeah. I know you're <laughs> a, a person. You're a human being, but you know you're you're brilliant and you do wonderful things and you help so many well, thank people. Thank you. So, um, thank you. It's been oh, an honour. Lovely. Thank you. Let's pray we press. Re- Record. Are we all? We're going to have to do it again. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials. <laughs> <laughs>